we put our heads together to both reimagine and lift the bar on what a modern motocross helmet should be. Opt for the highest level of modern technology and energy dispersion with the Fly Racing Formula Helmet. Designed for an elevated defense against a wider range of real-world impact scenarios. Globally engineered with the most advanced materials and technologies available. Outfit yourself with proven technology, lightweight performance, and elevated impact management with the Fly Racing Formula Helmet. Hey everyone, Michael Antonovich with Swap Moto Live, bringing you this episode of the Fly Racing Swap Moto Podcast. When Salt Lake City was announced as the location for the final rounds of the 2020 Monster Energy Supercross Series, one of the first thoughts that came to mind for everyone was about the tracks. A new layout for every round is a defining trait to Supercross, but there were some concerns that Feld and Dirtworks would be limited by the short time between races and the space of Rice Eccles Stadium. With a handful of races complete, it's clear that the crews were up for the challenge, even against weather factors like wind, heat, and rain. The tracks have been different in their own ways, and they've managed to make the Utah soil much more than just the dry and slick hard pack we saw at the first round. With the time here in Utah winding down, we got the chance to talk with Alex Gillespie of Dirtworks and Mike Muey of Feld Entertainment, two guys that called the shots on track prep about what it was like to draw up seven different designs, the modifications to their workflow for reduced staffing, and how the open-air stadium has been a factor. It's always interesting to hear about how things like this come together, and both guys share a lot of information in this podcast. For more, check out Alex's YouTube channel, which always has a vlog of Dirtworks builds, and go listen to a podcast we did a few months ago with Mike Mewey about actually putting together each round of Supercross. As always, check out SwapMotoLive.com for more information. Thanks for listening. So, Alex, before we get started, can you take me back to Indianapolis? I rewatched that vlog that you guys did from that track build, well, actually the track teardown. So how uh, how much of a bummer was it to pretty much just destroy a pristine supercross track that you guys had just finished up a few hours before it was definitely a bummer like the whole you know every week when we build a track it's kind of the build-up like um you know how the lanes are going to work or what situations we're going to have that might need a little tweaking here and there and it's just like the fact that we never got to see bikes at the track was was a big bummer you know and then it all happened so fast at first there was a rumor that you know, there's going to be no fans and, uh, that there's still going to be a race. And then, you know, a few hours later we find out that the race has been canceled. So it was just like, you know, the whole race of lining up trucks and, and trying to get this, all the dirt moved out and everything just, it just felt weird just not having the satisfaction of seeing the race. And then, and then the loadout process starts. So, um, never thought we would see a situation like that, but, um, we did, and uh, it was it was definitely uh, pretty weird. Okay, moving on to the season restart. When there were multiple options for venues, you know, St. Louis was in the mix, Phoenix. Uh, we'd even heard Houston a few weeks ago. What was the process like for you as the Dirtworks guy? Did you start contacting the local vendors with the Caterpillar equipment and the trucking stuff, and start coming up with track designs, or did you have to wait until you got confirmation on where you guys were going to go? Um, it was, it was kind of like nothing was, nothing was never, um, confirmed. It was just like the possibility of, we might try and do it in Vegas or Glendale or St. Louis. And it changed, you know? So I was trying to stay ahead of the game and kind of, and kind of have, you know, some track designs for those venues lined up. So when I get the call and say, all right, we're going to Vegas or, okay, it's Glendale. Um, I kind of already had most of my work done. So I was pretty busy from the time 
we got home from Indy all the way till we flew out here. I mean, I did five tracks for um, Dan Boyd Stadium, and then I I had seven tracks done for uh, Glendale, and then it ended up being Salt Lake. So I was d- doing the track designs like crazy, but uh, um, you know, it is what it is. You know, every tra- every place we go has its pros and cons, and it's always a struggle. But we're going to make the best of it. But um, yeah it's bouncing around like that i mean you just hear rumors and then what they're trying to do but i mean feld was super you know they call me mike mike would call me every other day and let me know you know nothing's confirmed but we're going to look at this venue and then i would try and start to do my homework so it was a lot of that until i got the full green light on salt lake city so you said you came up with a handful of designs for sam boyd stadium considering that's a pretty similar floor plan to what we have here at rice eccles did a lot of that stuff just transfer right over, or are these completely clean sheet designs here too? Well, um, this is like Salt Lake City is one of the smaller venues that we go to, and um, we can't go outside like we do in um, Boyd Stadium. And the, the days between the races changed from the from the potential schedule. So with only two day turnarounds, a lot of the designs I kind of had to. Uh, crumple up and throw in the garbage because like we don't have time for the bridge we don't have time for you know certain things so i kind of had to simplify it but make it the best that we could so um like this track for example um the one that's going to happen tomorrow the starting lines along the uh the sidelines which we normally can't have because um you know fans don't want to sit in seats where there's just no lanes right in front of you so i tried to take a little advantage of the fact we're not going to have fans to incorporate something cool and new. Um, it's kind of the starting line against the sidelines. It's kind of like an old school thing. If you look back to like the eighties, um, the starts were along the wall, which I always thought was unique. So I threw two tracks in that was like that. Okay. Um, Mike had pointed something out to me earlier this year that you guys had rewatched races and really broken down what sections lead to what kind of racing battles on the track. Did you make use of all of that? data when coming up with these or was it such a scramble right now of like hey we need to get seven put together and and just build them no i mean we we've you know me and mike always go back and forth on what we think works what doesn't work you know um overall what makes for one line racing certain things before certain sections that kind of give opportunities for passing and block passing and stuff like that so i always keep that in mind you know, we want the racing to be as good as it can be with the power that we have. I mean, I mean, at the end of the day, we have no control over the fact that Tomac might get the whole shot and win with a 30-second lead, or it might be the battle all the way to the end between Cooper and, you know, Tomac like we saw in the mud. Um, but with what, with what we learned, we definitely incorporate that to try and make the racing the best it can be. There have been some creative elements, too. Like you said, moving the start for these next two races all the way against that wall. Um, the start you had at these last two where it wove in between the finish line jump or right around it. Is it fun to get creative with stuff like this because you don't have to worry what the on-site fan presence is about so much? Yeah, any opportunity to be creative and try and do something different, like I definitely uh, try and jump on that. I mean, there's, a lot, there's, there's restrictions and things that AMA might not like or the fact that you know some tracks are better or not better for medical 
and stuff like that. But, um, you know, you read the comments online and a lot of people are just bashing you, but it's over, it's over stuff that we can't do and they don't understand. You know, we don't have two bridges and we can't have certain tracks where, um, Doc Bodner, like this, this upcoming track might not be the friendliest Doc Bodner track. So, um, you know, I try, we try to avoid those for the most part. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, and Michael, just to, just to kind of elaborate on that a little bit. So, um, some of the things that, that are taken into consideration. So for example, and I'll, I'll go back to an earlier point, um, the finals here was actually going to be, uh, a track that we were able to race around the outside. Um, that opportunity presented itself because the venue is under construction, as you know, um, and they were going to be at a point in their construction project that we could actually um, build over the dirt that they were working in. Um, once the season got postponed, everything kind of uh, everything except for the construction project got pushed back. Um, so they were further along than we had originally anticipated. So, um, you know, while while there are some restrictions, there's also some benefits as well in that we're able to uh, capitalize on, you know, a construction project that will allow us to, to make the track, the lap times a little bit longer here. Um, and then as, as Alex references, um, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of nuances that aren't always kind of taken into account uh, as far as, far as um, you know, what's the safest racetrack, not only for the riders, of course, but uh, for the, for the personnel working, uh, where can Doc Bodner be able to, uh, where can he move around on his cart uh, to effectively, uh, you know, do the tasks that he needs to do, um, you know, where can photographers be, all of that stuff is taken into account uh, every time that, that Alex designs a track. Thanks for bringing up the point about running the track outside the stadium because I remember that being on the original track map, and then we got here and I saw that it was basically just a big pit out there. And when I saw that, I'm like, okay, yeah, they're not they're not going to be able to make use of that stuff. So. Yeah, another challenge that you guys didn't face, but all things considered on on what you guys have here, I mean, it's been it's been outstanding and the racing that you guys have provided through the track designs have, have been incredible. Um the now, um when we got here and saw when I got here and saw that the uh the the construction, I was pretty bummed because if we did have the final here, the sweeper behind the stadium, that midway through the sweeper it would actually drop down to field level. So there'd be like kind of like a huge fall off and it would have been awesome, but um, they're too far along now and we couldn't go back there. So I'm kind of a bummer. Yeah. The thing that I've thought about that since we got here, it would look like a video game in every way, shape and form, just because that big rock cutout wall and everything else that would be back there. I mean, it would be something straight out of like the Supercross video games back in the day. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Supercross, the official video game four. Oh yeah, see that's something. That maybe that's a, a a track builder element that you get to build into next year. Um, so Alex, for you coming up here, knowing you guys have a very good relationship with Caterpillar dealerships around the country, was it hard for you to get all the heavy equipment that you guys need for this long, or has everybody been pretty understanding? Um, that that's actually would be a question for uh, Dan Allen. He's he's like the uh, um, head dirt guy at Feld, and he lines up all of the. Uh, equipment and trucking for all the venues so that's something that he's taken on more and more kind of off of our shoulders over the over the years and now he seems to be kind of handling the majority of it so like dirtworks has great um contacts with all of caterpillar and um we have a great relationship and so does Feld. 
But uh, he set up all the equipment and the fuel. And uh, uh, Kirk Kitchens, um, JPD, he does a lot of work with us as far as moving out when we can't move out and uh, laying the floor down and moving in dirt or road base. So because um, our schedule is so tight, especially with futures now, we kind of find ourselves doing less and less move, dirt move-ins and move-outs. So um, if Monster Jam follows, sometimes we get to a venue and 75% of the dirt is already in the stadium and the equipment's there, and we might have to load all the dirt out or we get to a stadium and we have to bring the dirt in and then the dirt will stay in for a following Monster Jam. So we, it's kind of like a, you know, it's kind of like a game of Jenga of, of, how, of how it all falls in place. Right, and, and people that follow... Supercross very closely know that there's always a pretty close tie-in between Supercross races and Monster Jam events in the same venues at the same amount of time within a week of each other. So yeah, thank you for pointing that out. Uh, One big question I've always had, and I know other people have wondered it as well, laying that many sheets of plywood down, who has to handle that, especially in a venue like this? I've actually only done it once myself when I, you know, maybe eight years ago when I first started. But um, there's a flooring crew. Uh, has a flooring crew or flooring crews that do flooring, and um, we don't do that anymore. Um, maybe Mike can elaborate on that. Yeah. So, um, Michael, it, we it, it varies city to city. Um, for example, here, um, as Alex had mentioned, JPD is is local, and they do a lot of our West Coast events. Um, but they came in three days prior to, to Alex and team coming in, uh, pushed out uh, the product as well as the base, uh, as we talked about in, in my previous podcast, um, so that when, when Alex and his team got here, they were fresh and ready to go to start building the track. It gives us a lot of opportunity to leapfrog so we can actually be loading into a stadium while we're racing in another stadium. Um, obviously, Salt Lake City is a little bit different, but that's... Um, you know, by and large, how we operate and and are able to operate so efficiently. Okay. This question will be for both of you. Um, When it did come time to figuring out what was going to be the necessary staff and the necessary equipment for an event like this, you guys did have to make some cuts. Things like the scoring pylon and the digital finish line are gone, but you still have all the normal signage and everything else that's been out there. When it came time to figuring out what was like a necessity and what you could get away with, uh, how did you have to make those decisions? Um, you know, from an operational standpoint, it, it, it was, um, I don't want to say easy, but it, it was something that we had kind of known and, and understood, uh, from, you know, other, you know, I've, I've been doing this for 14 years. So, um, I remember back when we had two 12 inch box trusses and a banner going across the finish line. So, um, it, you know, myself and Prater and we, we've all been around for a while. So, um, you know, when you when you remove things like the LED boards and stuff, um, it, it kind of takes you back to that, and you know what, what's required and what's needed. But um, you know, as as far as uh, staffing and and things like that, um, we know the the staff that we need to safely operate the racetrack, and then we worked backwards from there. So um, you know, starting to look at some of the other components. We don't have fans in, in FanFest, um, but we still do have a operational paddock. Um, so what's required in order to make sure that the teams are covered with their needs? Um, and, and then, of course, without um, uh, fans in the stands, our, our 
Diamond Vision and, and in-house graphics packages are drastically reduced, but still required. Um, so working with the resources that are already here, as far as AMA timing and scoring, our television trucks are here, and then the venue has resources, um, and and we were able to you know put together the package that's that's um, you know best for the type of events we're doing. We we did learn along the way, um, you know that the riders on the top of the timing tower. Uh, there's a clock as well as the finish line, um, which they're paying attention to throughout practice. And it's also giving their, them their top qualifying times. Um, without our, our full complement of production folks in-house, um, the riders were racing uh, or were doing practice without really knowing where they're qualifying. Um, so teams let me know. Uh, I worked with the building and, and AMA and, um, you know, the television folks, and we came up with, um, a, a graphics package that, uh, while it's not something we'd probably present on a, on a weekly basis, it, it provided the information that the riders needed um, in order to, you know, better better suit their qualifying procedures. So, um, you know, we, we tried to think in, uh, as far out and as advanced as, as many variables as we can, but, you know, um, we're adaptable too. So we learn as we go and uh, take advice from teams and, and, you know, AMA and Dirtworks and anybody that wants to give it and, uh, you know, make the changes to make it as good as it can be. Okay. The one thing that I remember uh, during the break between Indianapolis and these races restarting, as there was concern of what venue venues you guys could get a hold of, everybody was like, hey, you know, just have these at the Supercross test tracks and things like that. It's, it is a good idea because those tracks are already there, but Alex, for you, and Mike, for you also, there's a lot of infrastructure like timing loops, uh, electrical cables, safety lights that have to be routed through there. So doing that stuff was not exactly a good idea because you guys build the tracks around all that conduit, correct? Yes. So um, we, we have a lot of power supplies um, positioned throughout the, the venues that we play at a you know traditional football or baseball stadium. Um, when you start looking at, at an outdoor track, we have to bring in everything, water supplies in some cases, um, you know, electrical, we, everything would have to run off a generator uh, with no house power. Um, you, you would have, uh, you know, here at the stadium, we have a full complement of AV package um, to be able to, to run things like timing and scoring on the boards for the riders to know if we were at a test track or something like that it, it would not be available so then we start looking at bringing in led boards and um there's a whole host of of assets that uh the infrastructure in a in a stadium provides that you just can't get anywhere else and even you know we we discuss nascar tracks and stuff and there's a lot of challenges there while they do have a pretty good infrastructure it's built around nascar so mostly um, you know, in the in the grandstands, behind the grandstands, or or in the center of the oval. So, um, you know, a stadium was always kind of our our goal to be in because of that infrastructure. And when you start taking television into account or night races with lights, there's there's a lot that goes into it. And that's what I had explained to like quite a few people actually just in one-on-one interactions or social media stuff like, hey, I understand where that does sound like a good idea, but to make this a proper show, there's all these other necessities that go along with that, that if they don't have, it becomes an even bigger strain on their department to go find a source to fulfill that need. So yeah, 
thank you for explaining that in really, really good detail, Mike. Okay, Alex, for you, um, you had to build two layouts, the race one and race four, that kind of eased guys back into things, um, especially race four because that was the first race for the 250 West Coast guys. How do you tame down a Supercross track in certain ways without making it so easy for guys of this world-class caliber? Um, I think the first the first one back was probably the easiest, um, mostly because the 450 guys and the 250 guys are just kind of getting back into the swing of things. But what's kind of a bummer is how fast the lap times get when you tame it down. And then when the main events come, it's like, it's like they're doing, you know, 26, 27 laps. So it's like finding that fine line and, and, you know, and depending on the distances of the jumps and how steep you make things, it's like, it's always kind of like a, a happy medium is what I always go by. It's like, if you, uh, make things a little closer and steeper, it slows it down, but it's a little, it's way more technical. And if you misjudge something, there's more of a chance you're going to overshoot something and come up short on the next jump in a rhythm lane. And then, you know, the safety factor comes in, but if you lay everything down too much and make the distances bigger, there's more room. You can accelerate between jumps and then you can go further. So now if you were to crash, you'd be at a higher speed. So it's like everything that we build, is kind of that, you know, what we've learned over the years is that happy medium of where it's kind of the correct speed, you know, and like all of our tracks, our measurements are kind of vary between a couple different distances that we think work best, making the rhythm lanes work and the safety buffer. What's up? This is Justin Barsha of the Monster Energy Yamaha team, and I trust the Rye Helmet. I know that every helmet is handcrafted in Japan and that the people who work at Arai are obsessed with building the best helmet they can possibly can. Staying safe is a priority for me, and this is why I choose Arai Helmets. Hey guys, Hunter Lawrence here. Lately I've been spending a whole lot of time at the mountain bike trails in the local area on my intense primer, and the thing's badass. For how good it is going up the hill, it's uh, amazing coming down the hill. It's uh, comfortable, nimble, and it doesn't feel uh, like you're going to go over the bars every five seconds. Uh, all their bikes in their lineup are awesome. So, yeah, you're ready to get serious about training on a cross-country bike or crushing lap times at your local trails. Or if you want to go a bit further, longer and faster, they, they just brought out a new Taser e-bike, which is, uh, yeah, everyone's given the double thumbs up on. So. Head down to your local Intense dealer or, or purchase uh, directly at IntenseCycles.com. Check it out, guys. What's up? This is Christian Craig. As a motocross racer, being in top physical shape is a must, and my favorite way to train is cycling. And whether it's road biking or mountain biking, I rely on Roy Cyclery to keep my bikes in perfect running order. Roy Cyclery has been servicing Old Town Upland, California since 1962. Mention the Swap Moto Life podcast for additional discounts in the shop. Hey, what's up, guys? Malcolm Stewart. Worst Connection has been building the best aluminum parts in the motocross for the last 30 years. From the awesome Pro Launch Start device and their original adjustable clutch perch assemblies, I am proud to use it on my Motoconcept Honda. Check them out at WorksConnection.com. What's up, Swap Moto fans? The Toyota Escondido Action Sports team supports some of the biggest racers in the sport, like Aaron Plessinger, Shane McElrath, Dean Wilson, Axel Hodges, Colt Nichols, Brian Deegan, and more. With over two decades of supporting racers, 
we become known as the place to buy a Toyota truck in Southern California. Toyota Escondido is a proud sponsor of the Swap Moto Live Show, and all you have to do to get the best deal on a quality Toyota truck is mention the show and tell them you want the Action Sports Special. Check us out online at toyotaescondido.com for more. Um, knowing that you had limited time between rounds, did you arrive early to establish a really solid baseline package of work that needed to be completed, or did you just show up just enough ahead of time because of different health viola- or health restrictions and concerns that the state has? We didn't really know. I mean, for when we showed up, we showed up um, uh, probably seven days before the first round to get tested and then wait before we started work. But um, the first build, we had plenty of time to build the track, try and get as much water as we could into it and get everything ready. But um, for the first build, like the trucks are still getting unloaded. We're building the starting gate the, and then, um, you know, the uh, Mike's crew is doing the overhead structure and the finish line and everything else. But once that's all done between rounds, that stays up. So the builds can be faster because there's, it's not like after the race, we have to take things apart and load them into trucks. It's just, we kind of place things where hopefully they can stay in the same spot for a while. Like the finish line actually only moves two times. It just might change direction. So when we build the finish line, we put transponder loops in both sides of it. So the takeoff, like the backside of the takeoff for the first race might be, um, you know, the takeoff for the next. So it would flip flop. We would just dig the landing out and throw it on the other side. So I tried to design the tracks where when you lay all the blueprints on top of each other, um, that finish line doesn't move because it's uh, kind of time consuming. And with two day turnarounds, we have to be super efficient. And if you look at the um, third and fourth track and then the fifth and sixth, they're um, pretty similar, and there's a few reasons why. But one of them would be for the weather. Like um, we had that mud race, and the tr- place was pretty, uh, pretty messed up and pretty muddy. But um, we had two days to turn it around, do a new track. Well, it wasn't really a new track. The starting gate didn't move. The hole shot, did, the um, finish line didn't move. Basically, when you turn left and coming into the first turn. Um, instead of turning into the outside lane, you turned into the middle lane and it just changed direction. So we weren't actually digging up jumps or blowing tough blocks off the track or any of that. We just kind of had to reface everything and, you know, do minor tweaks, like whether if the finish line landing needed to get dug up or this jump needed to get plowed down, it was, it was minimal work than completely building an entire new super cross track. So it actually worked out perfectly because we got that rain and it's almost like I didn't plan for it, but it was like just in case and it happened. And it, the turnaround was perfect with what we were hit with. Mm-hmm. Okay. The, going back to the first race here, I mean, the big challenge was how hot it was. And then the wind that came through, um, you guys did everything yeah. you could, but I mean, there's only so much you can do, especially on this like mountain hard pack up here. So what were some of the challenges and some of the lessons that you guys learned from that first race that you've had to apply to the rest of these? Yeah, the the wind and the heat was brutal for the first one, and it was a day race, and it was like there wasn't a cloud in the sky. It was kind of like the what we were hoping wouldn't happen, but we uh, we did the best we could. And then with the once the first once the show starts, like the turnarounds between the racing, we follow a TV schedule, 
and it's like we have seven minutes for maintenance or 15 and it varies with what um we're in contact with john gallagher all the time in our headsets and he's he's counting down on when we have to get off the track so and uh watering as well but with watering it's you know you have to put into perspective when the when it's windy and things get hard it starts to blue groove and it's kind of scary because you don't want to hurt anybody you know watering something that's hard as concrete is not is not safe so it's like that fine line so when we have time we we try and track everything with the dozers because the the cleats kind of chew up everything and then we backtrack with the skid steers so everything's kind of fluffed up and, and it takes water and there's traction but between those tight turnarounds we don't have time for that so it's just watering what we think needs to be watered to prevent dust but also still be safe so we uh we factor all that in and it's I know the riders on the gate are probably nervous when we're when they see us drag those fire hoses, but um, we were thinking about them and their safety. Okay. Um, by the time we got to race two, that night race, which was a completely different track, honestly closer to a traditional Supercross than I think we've had at any time up here, was there something that you guys did differently for that, or did just a lot of factors work into your favor with it being a night race, with there being the chance to get some more water into the dirt, things like that? Um, I think it was more the fact that it was a night race. I mean, um, once that sun goes down, it's like whatever moisture we put into the dirt, it stays there, you know, and then we can really work it in and we don't have the the wind and the, with, and the sunlight just baking the track dry. So it definitely helps. And we're stoked when the whole track is, you know, good moisture content looks like there's decent traction all over the place is, uh, more of a fan of the night racing than the day racing okay. the mud at race three i mean that was the thing that you guys knew was coming days ahead of time so once you got the build complete for that one what was the process to preserve the track from getting too waterlogged by all that rain on saturday yeah it was wild like the day before um the race it was probably one of the hottest days it was like i felt like it was 100 degrees and it was it was it was so weird pulling plastic over a track when it was that hot out, and then overnight when the when the storm came in, it was, the temperature dropped drastically and it was pretty cold on race day. Um, and pulling the plastic and everything, it was uh, the track turned out better than I thought it was going to be, honestly. But um, we uh, the the build went pretty quick. I mean, the one good thing about this stadium, kind of being one of the smaller venues, is it's uh it's not it's not huge there's less jumps you can build and the the tracks overall smaller so the builds go quicker so we have more time to factor in pulling plastic and doing this and doing that getting ready for the mud and you know getting pumps ready and all that stuff so um like i said earlier the weather actually came at a good time for us okay when you did pull everything off on sunday morning it was all good. I saw the tops of the jumps all look dry. Yeah, there were some soft spots between the transitions, and then the big storm came, and then you guys really had to get into action by pumping stuff out and then pushing all of the heavy mud off to the sides as quick as you could. I mean, you guys have really, unfortunately, a lot of good practice at this, so do you have just a set system that you know, hey, we need to go to these critical areas with this equipment and make this happen? Yeah, I guess over the years, we've kind of got a little system down, um, the biggest thing is when we originally build the track between the jumps, it's not leave any kind of little windrows. It's almost like we, we dig 
we try and dig drainage notches like before the rain comes. So when it does rain, um, when the water kind of pushes the plastic down, it just automatically bleeds off. And, you know, we're not perfect, but when water does puddle up, it softens everything. And that's what we try to avoid. So like, um, like with the start straight, we didn't cover it. We've kind of been kind of sealing it and letting it be hard as concrete. So it doesn't puddle up or when it does puddle up, we come in and then cut drains that goes right off to the side. When we have it covered with plastic, you can see the puddles form and then it softens the floor. So we've gone back and forth with that to try and figure out what, what works best. But, um, we definitely have a technique down and it seems to be working because the the track was better than what I had imagined when I saw it downpouring like that. Okay. For riders and equipment and all that, for the motorcycles, it's almost better when it keeps raining because it doesn't get so heavy and clump up and then weigh the bikes down and destroy them. For you guys, is it worse, though, when it keeps raining because then it just turns into complete slop? I think it's kind of the same. It's like when it when it rains and starts to dry up, it turns into, like, that peanut butter, and it's like the equipment almost gets bogged down. All the mud gets packed into your tracks. It's really hard to even make it over a jump because it's just so slimy. But if it keeps raining at some point, it's better because everything turns into like soup and puddles and you can actually kind of still navigate. But um, it's like when it turns into peanut butter, it's like, I hope the sun comes out because this could turn around because it's kind of dry. And then, and then if it keeps raining, it's like, all right, well, if it's going to rain, it needs to keep raining so uh, we can at least get on the floor. Gotcha. Uh, that actually makes a lot of sense, especially because, like you explained, stuff getting into the tracks and stuff like that. I mean, it's pretty much over once those yeah. things become become packed in. Yeah. Okay. Um, limited time between Sunday and Wednesday to get everything going. Like you said, it was fortunate that the track was the reverse direction. Did you guys have to do a lot, though, to salvage the track, or was it just going through and smoothing things over because the moisture was already there? We actually had a... Uh a huge pile of mud and it was like a big suit pile in the middle of the start straight all week before when we were turning the track over and we weren't sure what to do with it because to get dump trucks on the floor, um, they might get stuck and then they're going to track the mud out into the street. And that would have been kind of a disaster with all the construction going on and, um, all that kind of stuff. So we kind of made the decision to keep the mud on the, behind the berm after the finish line and kind of try and hide it the best we could. But the day before the race was so hot, we actually spread like 75% of the mud out on the start straight with the loader and back dragged it. And we just kept working it and working it and working it. And with the mud spread so thin, we were able to process it back into good dirt. And the start straight was like a little spongy, but it was dry and looked like the bikes had good traction versus anything that would be hard packed in blue groove. So by the time the race came, there was actually like way less under the, the pile of mud was way smaller than what it originally was. And now for this tra- for the race tomorrow, the rest of that mud is actually in the um, sweeper after the whoops. So hopefully that corner gets some good ruts in it before the little dragons back that hooks back onto the start straight. Very cool. Um, with everything that's been going on here, using the same dirt over and over and over again, yeah, there are places like Anaheim where you use the same dirt for years, but have you learned a lot about this terrain in Salt Lake City? Because it is really rocky, it is really hard pack, but with some effort and with some work, you guys can turn it into pretty much anything. Yeah, it's like um, every every time we pile up the dirt and kind of relay out new new lanes to to build with 
to build, the dirt seems to kind of be getting a little more, have a little more moisture in it, and it kind of seems to be getting better than where it was at the first one. Um, there's a lot of rocks in this dirt, but uh, it kind of seems like there's less and less from each race. I mean, the, for after the first round, like on the insides of the bowl turns, it was like real gravelly, and then um, after the mudder when we piled it up and then rebuilt, it's just like you see less rocks. There's still a lot of rocks, but it seems to be almost be getting better. So hopefully we can keep the ball rolling on that. With the riders always giving you guys feedback, I mean, there is track walk that you guys do, and then you can always see guys run over and tell you guys what they think of, hey, you know, this jump or this transition, this corner. Without them being able to walk the track, how have they been able to relay feedback to you guys? Um, the, the bunch of riders follow me on Instagram and they, uh, they actually message me, um, their thoughts. You know, I talk to Zach Osborne a lot. Um, Blake Baggett always comes up and says what he thinks. I mean, um, I encourage it. It doesn't, if, if they don't, if someone doesn't like something, I mean, they're more than welcome to give me their pain. It's not going to hurt, hurt my feelings. I don't really have an ego, you know, I'm building the track. I'm not necessarily riding it. And I keep, I keep an open mind, you know, if someone's struggling on something that everyone else is doing good at, like that rider is not going to uh, really technically like that section. So, but um, Mike also gets a lot of feedback and he's in contact with me. Yeah. Uh, Michael. So uh, we are on a group text message with uh, all of the race teams. Um, so they can communicate directly back with us and Mike Pelletier uh, from the AMA is on that as well. Um, and then, you know, obviously constant communication with riders um, throughout the week and other things, uh, they're, they're, they don't have any hesitation to bring anything that they want discussed up uh, directly with, with myself as well. Um, we do, you know, if, if one rider kind of comes and suggests something or one team manager comes and suggests something, um, we'll actually reach out to uh, several different riders uh, so that we we get some type of common consensus um, so that we're not just making decisions and changes uh, based on, you know, one rider's preference. It's multiple riders that have the same suggestion. Okay. Thanks for clearing that up too, because there's always, anytime you guys change, especially the whoops, that's the first thing that people always say, well, so-and-so called and, and they got knocked down for this one reason. But thanks for explaining that, Hey, no, there is a, a, a general consensus that has to go across all of the team managers before there's one sweeping change made to the track. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's definitely not the case. It's never changed. Um, unless there's a safety concern, um, that, you know, one of us just feels needs to happen. Um, it's always discussed with multiple riders, uh, and team managers, and then, you know, kind of get everyone's feedback and then make a decision based off of that. You're never gonna. It's like being a, a little league umpire. You're never gonna be. You're never gonna be right in everybody's eyes. You know. Um, so um, we make the decision that that makes the most sense for the collective group. Gotcha. Okay. Um, for both of you guys, this is a pretty big question. You are unlimited workloads staff or limited work staffs here. It's a very quick turnaround time for everything. I mean, you guys are dealing with restrictions and guidelines from the state health department, the college, everything that's going on here. So this has to be rewarding to see all of this stuff come together almost flawlessly each day with 
all of the challenges that you guys are up against. Has this been probably the most rewarding effort that you guys have put together in all of your years of working? Um, I mean, I think it's right up there. Uh, I feel like we've done some some pretty big and cool stuff, but um, you know, it, it's always whether it's um, you know middle of the season race or or um, you know these seven rounds or Anaheim one or whatever the case is that. I think it's just rewarding to, to put on such a world-class event. So um, would I say that, that this is one of the most rewarding? Um, no, but am I proud of, um, you know, not just Feld and Dirtworks and, and uh, that, that, you know, are putting it together, but all of the race teams, all the riders, everybody has came together um, to, to put these on. So, um, you know, I, I, uh, I think that um, you know it's it's overall beneficial to have events that it couldn't happen without the entire paddock um, helping us do it. So, uh, and that's rewarding um, to have the industry all come together collectively to make something go forward like this. Yeah, I agree. I mean, Mike Todd and Dave and everybody put a lot of hard work to find a venue that would accept us and all the all everything that came at them and and the fact that we were able to put this together and have a successful seven events and then the season was the overall goal and i think everyone's happy to be and to try and get this thing done and uh i couldn't be happier that we're we're back out here building some tracks okay last question for you alex of all the sections that you build bull turns whoops finish lines big rhythm sections What's your favorite obstacle to build? And then what's your favorite one to see guys go get through, you know, how they dissect it and figure out the fastest way through it? Um, definitely rhythm lanes. Um, this year we've actually been pretty, pretty lucky with uh, the split lanes, like um, Anaheim two, that split lane after the finish line. Um, you know, when there's a lot, a lot of passing going on, you see the outside and inside was pretty even. And, uh, that was, you know, that's obviously the goal when you build a split lane and it's just a rabbit trail on one side, it's a huge bummer. The one section is just like abandoned and it's hard to find that fine line, especially with, you know, the, um, the lit pro and, and all the stuff that they have to see which lanes are faster. But during the main event, when the track breaks down, um, you know, the timing changes and the fact that some of those split lanes were have been working so well. Um, a two split lane was awesome. Um, let's see, San Diego, there was uh they went through the whoops and then there was that out, that left-hand sand sweeper that had kind of like an inside and an outside. And then there was the four footers and then that off camber right-hand turn, like that whole section combined worked awesome. There's just little things like that. Um, Glendale, there was the sand too, outside inside that worked pretty good. Um, I just look for little things like that where riders are going on both options and it's making people set each other up for passing. That's, uh, that's definitely the most rewarding when it comes to designing something. And when you're drawing it or, or designing it and, it's, and that's what you have in mind and then it becomes a reality, it is, it's a great feeling. Hey guys, thank you so much for getting on the phone. Congratulations on all the stuff you're doing. You know, the general consensus from everybody here at the races, but also from what we've been seeing online has been that your efforts have been really paid off and worthwhile. The racing has been excellent. The tracks have been exciting to watch. I've had a great time up here. Um, thank you for all the photo access and stuff like that that you guys have done. I appreciate you guys getting on the phone, and uh, let's finish these last few out.